Welcome to a podcast by Grantmakers in the Arts, a national association of public and private arts and culture funders. I'm Sherilyn Seeley, GIA's program manager. GIA is a community of practice with a shared vision of investing in arts and culture as a strategy for social change. Since 2008, GIA has been elevating racial equity as a critical issue affecting the field. To actualize this work within the sector, GIA published its Racial Equity and Arts Funding Statement of Purpose in 2015. Since then, this journey has reaffirmed the many intersections at play as we leverage our dollars for the deepest impact and continue exploring new ways to be agents of change. This podcast is part of the 2020 Grantmakers in the Arts Racial Equity Podcast Series. In this podcast episode, we are glad to have Walida Imarisha, a writer, educator, poet, and the artist who coined the term visionary fiction. We're also glad to have Lisa Yancey, an entrepreneurial strategist, president of Yancey Consulting, and the author of the Thrivability Report, which discusses sustainability versus thrivability for historically disinvested arts and culture organizations. We're glad to have them joining us. Today, we will discuss ways to radically build towards a new normal, how to think differently about the future, and ways to put these ideas into action. So thank you for joining us, Lisa and Walida. So how are you both showing up today? I'll start. <laughs> Hi, this is Lisa Yancey speaking. Um, today, I am showing up feeling loved. I, I, I really am, I have deep gratitude for my love community, my, my tribe, and um, today I feel that we can do the work, do the rigorous work, and still hold joy. So I feel love today. Mm, that's great. This is Walida Imarisha, and I think today I am showing up just incredibly thankful and grateful for the Black youth and the Black folks who are mobilizing across this country, around this world, who are changing the future and the present as we speak, and who are part of a long tradition of a Black liberation struggle. Great, thank you both. And so as we get into this conversation today, can you first both tell us how you would define radical or radical action? Well, I always like to really center in the Angela Davis quote where she talks about radical within the Latin meaning of it to get to the root of things. And I think that framing is incredibly useful when we are talking about uh, movements and community organizing, because what we're often offered is surface reform that does nothing to change the foundations of institutions and systems that perpetuate inequality. And so I think we really have to be getting to the root of things in our analysis. And when we are envisioning change and alternatives, they have to be as deeply rooted, more deeply rooted than the oppression that we are fighting against. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what I would add, absolutely, to the root, you know, I feel the word radical on its own has a double consciousness. So on the one hand, it is the root of something, it's the essence of something, it is the core of something. But on the other hand, it's also the farthest from the center. It is the extremities, it is the stretch. 
And I like to think about Audre Lorde when she says it's difficult to talk about double messages without having a twin tongue. And I think about this, this notion of radicalness is both holding the center, being firm, being clear, being anchored on what the thing, what's the cause mm -hmm. that we are working to dismember, <laughs> quite frankly. Yeah. Um, and then while simultaneously stretching yourself in all directions to the farthest extent possible uh, to effect to effect that in. Great. Um, so with that, and in terms of your own work, how are you prioritizing and practicing radical action um, as you defined it? And I know you both are very much connected with the arts community and the arts world. And, and I even saying that it sounds like I'm making it completely separate when this is kind of all intertwined. So I'd love to hear your, th your thoughts on how you're prioritizing and practicing. So um, in my practice, uh, I would say now it's 2020 and 2009, um, Yancey Consulting decided that we would work exclusively uh, with organizations or on projects that impact historically disenfranchised, disinvested, underinvested communities. Um, and the way that we uh, filter this, these ideas of impact, we look at structural and systemic, we look at economic, we look mm -hmm. at visibility, leadership, and environmental. And so before we decide to be a, a thought partner with anyone, we hold that clarity. And so for me, this, the, the definition of radicalness and this idea of having a clear purpose having and knowing and naming the thing that for which you're doing is one part of that root. The other hand, that, that double tongue that I referenced uh, earlier is the way that we think about the stretch. Um, it's both in first thing having an ecosystem analysis and understanding the interdependence of things um, and thinking generationally. So if we were to bring in the Iroquois philosophy of thinking seven generations and holding that the work that we're doing now should benefit and make the world more sustainable seven generations from now. Mm -hmm. We're thinking about our work, um, even if we're focusing on planning over the next three to five years, what are the implications and what's the impact of that work that we're doing today that's yeah. going to impact tomorrow um, and continue to name that um, in the imagination. And the third thing I would say in the way that this centers in our work is that um, we interrogate everything. We, and we, you know, to bring in the miseducation, Rachel Cargill, Rachel Elizabeth Cargill talking about the great unlearn. I mean, we have been, <laughs> there's a lot of work. There's a lot of work that, uh, and I wanna be mindful of the language we, because the we is not the same for everyone. That's but right. there's, a, there's, there's a lot of work um, that at different levels that we all must do to unlearn and shed um, the oppressive practices that we've been taught and the biases that biases um, and even I want to say even um, internalized um, oppressive behaviors yes. uh, that, that we hold. And so we, we disrupt that by keeping that at the center uh, in our work. That's great. Yeah, that's so powerful, Lisa. Everything you said, I'm like, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> Um, I mean, I think one of the things to, to root in that original question as well is when we have a radical analysis, when we look at the, the ways that these oppressions have been institutionalized, they are systemic, then we, we, it changes our analysis because we recognize reform will not 
fundamentally change the way that hierarchies are structured, the way that oppression functions, because they are functioning as they, they were intended. This exactly. is not a, an accident. It is not something, things have gone off course. Things are actually exactly on track as they were planned. And so I think it's important when we have that analysis and rooting, as Lisa talked about, in this sort of you know, temporal fluidity, recognizing that when we understand how these things have come to be in the, the past, it shapes and changes what we do now to get a different future. And so if we truly fundamentally want futures that are free, that are liberated, that are rooted in justice, we cannot reform so many of these systems that shape our lives. They have to be uh, abolished and they have to yep. be replaced. And so much of my work focuses around that. A lot of my work that I have done focuses on the abolition of, of police, of prisons, um, and of a larger sort of carceral mentality. And I explore that in lots of different ways. I have a creative nonfiction book that focuses on uh, prisons and on um, abolition, really looking at the idea that sometimes folks do harm to each other, and then, and then what do we do? And how do we maintain rooting in humanity even as we hold the complexities and contradictions of, of harm, as well as framing a pri the prison system as an immense harm that is, is done uh, to entire communities. And so, you know, uh, I've really been uh, trying to root in that and root in an understanding of uh, recognizing we have to look at the intersections of identities and the intersections of oppression. Because when we center folks who are uh, living at the intersections of identities, that's when we see what true liberation for our entire communities, our entire society can look like. And a lot of my work focused around visionary fiction has been about how do we use fantastical writings, fantastical art to help people see that different ways of being are not just possible, they are tangible, they are breathing, they are waiting for us. And so, uh, you know, I write also science fiction and a lot of that is about how can I create uh, options and ideas of what these futures might look like. And I'm not trying to create the perfect future. I think we collectively together have to do that. But I think we have been, we've all lived in this system, as Lisa said, we've all been indoctrinated in this system from the beginning to think that nothing else is possible. We have to have examples and ideas and places where we can imagine something different. We have to have art that we can bounce off of. And, you know, I can present a vision of the future. And even if someone's like, I don't like that vision of the future at all, but you know what would be great I feel like that's that's wonderful. Reject my vision of the future uh, if you want. I mean, some of it's good. Don't reject it all. <laughs> but really, the goal is to get folks thinking concretely and tangibly about possibilities and recognizing these possibilities are within our reach. They are not something that we have to set a thousand years in the future. This can happen. This can happen now. This can happen very quickly. Um, but we have to first be able to imagine that it's possible 
to be able to build it into existence. Well, if I if I may jump in with an absolute and an amen to everything <laughs> Walida said, and one of the things that I I'm I'm just like loving and holding in her words and in her passion is the reality. First, the rejection of reformation. This that we're going to reform. That we mm -hmm. we just need to cut the edges. We need to modify. We need to do a little bit, and then it'll get better. No, it was it, if the root of the system was designed to privilege the very specific few, uh, and, and particularly I'll name the framers were white men speaking of other white men, quite frankly, at that time. So if the root of that, every amendment of it, every modification of it doesn't uh, disrupt, upend, or dismember that root, that root is still there feeding into everything. So that's yes. one of the things I love the other thing that I love about what Walida was saying and why her work and others who do work like her is that we, her work sets the possibility of something we've never had before, right? So anyone who's doing anti-oppression, anti-racist work, looking for just um, an equitable existence have to be imagining because it was never designed to exist in the first place. We're holding a vision. We have faith that if we hold it in our head, that we, it can possibly become a part of our reality. And so um, the visionary fiction is actually the precursor to the visionary reality. And I really love what uh, Walida is saying and how it's truly a precursor to the possibilities that, that are yet to come. And I really, I appreciate your work. Mm, that was great. Um so I just want to create a little bit more space to hear if if there's any any particular moments throughout your journey and throughout your work where you've collaborated with someone, partnered with someone, and you just kind of want to share a little bit more about what they're doing, um, what you've done with them, what you've seen, just to give folks different things to keep in mind as we continue to move forward in this work. You know, what's coming up for me, Sherilyn, as you asked the question about examples um, is that the the reality is that is, is that it takes a village for real right. and and right. quite frankly often my examples the faces that come up are black women as the lead and so I think about the work that's happening with Celeste and Shonda at the Pittsburgh Foundation and the Heinz Foundation I think about uh, in, in, in their advancing black arts program and the work that they're seeking to do and are doing mm -hmm. um, in centering black lives. I think about the work that um, the partnership with Maureen Knighton um, um, and Karen McCarthy for the work that even led to uh, the Thrivability Report and the number of conversations, because the conversations happen um, Officially and unofficially, formally yeah. and informally, because it's always the work. It's always the kitchen cabinet work. Uh, I call in the number of um, artists, civic practice artists, who have been and continue to center and work in communities and working at the intersection of organizing plus being an, being a, a practicing artist, plus being entrepreneurial in their artistry, plus being um, a a teacher to, to many about how to think about this work, elevating these ideas and ideas of how institutions um, truly engage 
not outreach, but truly engage and where, what that means in communities. So I, yeah. Um, but yeah. there are a number of individuals, there are a number of uh, program officers, there are a number of um, practitioners and administrators, um, there are a number of strategic thought partners um, who are on the, really on the front lines and often in the shadows doing this work. So I'd like to lift up all of those and invite others yep. to, to step up, <laughs> to not just wait to hear. Mm-hmm. Like when Walida was saying, if you don't like my vision, awesome, come up with one, yeah. offer something, like be, let it be the inspiration for you to imagine something different. If you don't like any of the things that's coming, that's fine. Come up with something different than the now. Um, and we all should hold uh, the agency to do that. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. And I think, like you said, I mean, just really rooting in centering the voices of the voices and the vision and the leadership um, of the, the most oppressed and the most marginalized, that folks who sit at those intersections. Um, and just, you know, really recognizing the, the need to, to center and to root in that. I mean, part of my work and, you know, co-editing an anthology called Octavia's Brood, Science Fiction Stories from Social Justice Movements with uh, my co-editor, Adrienne Marie Brown. The premise of this collection, which is fantastical writing written by organizers and activists, is that all organizing is science fiction. And our framing around that is very, it, it was always, you know, kind of fundamental and very important to my work around visionary fiction before Octavia's Brood and the work that I've done since then. And I think it also is important artistically because it blurs the line, which Lisa, we were ta- you were talking about, we've been talking about, uh, it blurs the line between this idea that art is separate from organizing recognizing that the imaginative, creative, ingenious work that is necessary to build new worlds is the same artistic passion and fire that allows us to uh, create works that explore and express our, our emotions, our feelings, the world around us. They are not separate. They are the same thing. And so I think it's incredibly important to recognize that, you know, all art is political, all art, as my co-editor Adrienne Marie Brown says, either advances or regresses justice. And so for folks to really be rooting in those connections, right. for, the, for, the, for good or for ill, and if you're not aware of what you're perpetuating in your art, you're most likely perpetuating oppressive status quos. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And well, and two things on that, it, which this is not a moment right? Like people are talking right. about this moment, this moment, this is not a moment, this is a movement, this is a movement that are, that's been centuries in the making. Exactly. Um, and there have been various different moments of reconstruction, so you will, mm-hmm. um, but we are apart and hit a crest at a, a moment of a movement that is, is now and that is continuing um, because it's, never, it's not over until it's done. Um, I wanted to lift up another thing that Walida said about centering and being clear that when we talk about centering BIPOC voices and strategies and ideas and priorities, centering does not mean isolating, does not mean say, okay, you tell us what to do and then you just go do it and we'll put some funds behind it, but then leave you there to by yourself to figure it out. 
Um, I, I, I want to be very clear that the, the work that we're talking about when you center, you also support, bolster, um, be completely a uh, part of fortifying uh, the ideas, the strategies, um, holding it as credible as the future. Um, and so in thinking about um, how to be supportive, if you don't have a vested interest where you too could feel the pain, mm -hmm. <laughs> like if you, if you don't have a, such a buy-in that you know that the quality of your existence also hinges upon the abilities for others to have full liberation, and that you're, you're kind of on the outside, well, I'm gonna give some support. Um, there's still this space. Centering doesn't mean hold the space. That means to be within community and be within communion. Don't just say here, you're in the middle by yourself. <laughs> Y'all go do the work because that, that's not the point. Certainly um, lead, validate, resource. And um, this is the perfect segue to our next question because it talks about um, the responsibility of funders. And uh, Lisa and Walida, you talked about bolstering and fertilizing support, taking risks. So what is the responsibility of funders and what type of commitment do funders need to have rather than here is the grant, I'll check in with you in three months, I'll check with, in with you in six months, we've reached the year mark, peace out, see you later. So what are your thoughts? I would say the responsibilities of funders, if you want change, change. Mm -hmm. If you want something different, look at every single thing that you have been doing that created this status quo and stop doing it Yeah, and imagine something different. I would say that the responsibility is to know and name the root cause without fear. Lean into it, claim it. Quite frankly, if you're not feeling pain, discomfort, but I, I, sometimes I even find discomfort a little too palatable um, because it's like slightly uncomfortable. Like if you don't feel like you're losing your breath, if you don't feel like you're gonna be ostracized, if you don't feel like someone's gonna look at you and say, what the hell? Where does that idea come from? No way. If you don't look like you're pushing something that feels like it is absolutely impossible to do and, until it's done, Mm -hmm. then you're not pushing far enough. Do that work. Do every time you feel like you've gone far enough, stretch further. There's the radicalness. Be rooted in the key thing that you know you're, you're seeking to disrupt. First, you got to be clear on what it is that you're trying to disrupt. And you're not just trying to disrupt, like, let's increase the grant amount. Because that is a strategy towards something bigger, right? Mm -hmm. That is one of the things. And if you're stuck on, I need to make add one more zero and then it's done, then you're not rooted in the problem. So be root, name, and own the problem. Um, but stop doing the same thing and keep stretching. Mm -hmm. Keep stretching until your body aches. Keep stretching until your colleagues are looking at you like, where's that coming from? Keep stretching until people who didn't call on you before now call you, say, okay, I see you. That's great. Yes, amen. <laughs> <laughs> And I think, you know, I think part of that connecting to, to what Lisa's saying and just what we talked about before is, you know, recognizing the ways that foundations, uh, philanthropy, the nonprofit industrial complex in general is part of this system. It was supported, created, and pushed forward to maintain oppressive structures. 
it is not neutral. I think that that piece is really important that there are, you know, institutions that like to think of themselves as neutral. And I think philanthropy is one of them. I think, you know, uh, as someone who teaches at a university level, academia is certainly one of them where they're like, we are neutral spaces that, you know, if, if anything, we do more good than, than ill. The reality is all of these systems were created to maintain the status quo. Mm -hmm. And that is deeply rooted in the foundations of this. I encourage every single funder to read Insights Anthology, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded. And then when you finish it, pick it up and read it again and take yes. it. <laughs> yes. Because, yes. Um, you know, it, it is incredibly important to know the history of philanthropies and foundations to see the ways that they have been, uh, you know, conceptualized from the beginning to uh, support the existing system. It's again, something that is structural and foundational. That doesn't mean there aren't spaces to subvert or to disrupt or to reimagine within that, but you have to understand that the foundational purpose of this was to further oppressive systems and hierarchies because if you don't then you you know you will continue to think that um oh if i just you know i'm just a good person and come in with a good heart and like hope for the best that things will go well the reality is you have to fight um tooth and nail every single day to to swim upstream to fight against mm -hmm. the ways that these institutions were were created to function and I, you know i think the the other piece that's incredibly important as well is you know as lisa's talking about when when we're moving these resources though that the need to center the vision the voices and the leadership to remove as many barriers as possible to give no strings attached resources because we implicitly trust the dreams and the vision of BIPOC communities. And we yes. trust because we have seen over and over and over again for centuries that when the vision, the voices and the dreams of black folks and other communities of color are centered, it makes everyone's life better. It changes yeah. the world for the better again and again and again. And so to say, oh my God, y'all have been holding this work for so long how can we give these resources to you and know that you will use them in the best way possible? And while we continue to do our work to try and dismantle as much as, as we can, the, the ways that uh, these systems we are part of continue oppression. But I, I think it's, it's so important uh, recognizing that the, the need for no strings at all, no, no, parameters or designations around the money that is being given to communities because communities have a proven track record for centuries that we fight and we win and we win for everyone. And, you know, the many of the things that make those wins possible, that make these liberated futures possible are things that cannot be quantified. You know, political education and leadership development and capacity building and community creation and space for dreaming and visioning. You cannot come out, okay, well, what is your agenda for your collective visioning of the future 100 years from now? That, <laughs> that will kill the creativity, right? And this goes back to that idea of organizing and art not being separate. 
you don't sit down with an artist and say, well, I need you to paint, you know, uh, something that covers two thirds of this canvas and incorporates these four different colors and um, reflects this specific angle, right? Mm -hmm. But we do that for community-based organizations every day when you're giving them funding. You mm -hmm. try and completely limit and control their creativity and their ingenuity. So instead saying, we trust because y'all have done this over and over again here are the resources, you, you tell us what else you need, we're gonna be here trying to do our work and as dismantle as much of this oppression as we possibly can. Yeah, write the check, write the check. <laughs> make, make the connections, uh, open your doors and, yes. and create access to, to spaces and communities. So all, just do it. I have like two mics in my hands and I just released them to the ground. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Well, we have come to the end of our podcast. Thank you so much, Lisa and Melita, for the conversation and for participating in our racial equity podcast series. Your work sheds a lot of light on how we should be thinking, strategizing, and acting toward the future and what will hopefully be the future that we'll live to see. And to our listeners, we look forward to continuing these conversations. So be sure to tune in to the GIA Racial Equity Podcast series. Be sure to follow us on Facebook at GIArts, Twitter at GIArts, and Instagram at Gritmakers in the Arts. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me, Sherilyn Seeley, at Sherilyn at GIArts.org. And lastly, as Dr. May Jamison says, never be limited by other people's limited imaginations. So to everyone listening, keep visualizing, keep imagining radically, and take action towards true liberation. Thank you so much for listening.